I learned that a spiritual path, like any worthwhile learning, is an invitation and not an obligation. That that's, a, that's at the heart of yoga. That it's an invitation to the heart, to the body, to the mind. It's an invitation to the soul to ask, um, what more is there and what do you want? Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the Glow Podcast. I had the pleasure of recording this conversation with Professor Douglas Brooks a few months ago. Professor Brooks was a Fulbright Fellow in Sanskrit at Madurai University in 1984-85 and later received his master's degrees and PhD in the study of religion from Harvard University. He has been teaching in the Department of Religion and Classics at the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York since 1986. I first met him in 2009. Over the years since, I've had the privilege of being able to ask him questions about yoga, philosophy, myths, literature, culture, politics, and so much more. Our conversations are rarely short, so we're dividing this one into two episodes. I wanted us to record an episode that attempts to unpack the history of yoga, its philosophical evolution, including its etymologies and how certain terms and definitions have evolved and continue to evolve. We also touch on the fundamental necessity of humans attempting to understand each other as part of the process of mutual freedom, the process of becoming competent adults, and the complicated dance of the human experience between suffocation and abandonment. If you ever wanted to go deep into yoga's roots, albeit still only as a basic introduction, you're going to love these episodes. For much deeper explorations about some of these topics that you'll hear in these two episodes, please see our extensive library of education content delivered by both him and Professor Chris Chappell on glow.com. I'll put a link in our show notes. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Douglas, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Derek, for inviting me. Great to be here with you. So I have to admit, I have an agenda for this episode. And if you're listening to this, thinking that the word yoga means it has always meant physical poses, such as a downward facing dog done on a sticky mat in stretchy pants to music, you would certainly be forgiven for thinking that. That message and stereotype are well reinforced in many cultures around the world today. In fact, our company, Glow, absolutely helps contribute to that stereotype, which is one of the reasons why we're so passionate about the quality and the depth of lecture content we offer in our library, uh, but also the concepts that are expressed and the ways in which our talented teachers lead st students through sequences of poses. There's a lot that can come across in between poses and before and after a class starts. But... I find just so often that there is an incredible amount of misunderstanding uh, with regard to what this word yoga means. And there's just so much more story to be told. Uh, you know, with this episode, I hope it leaves you both satisfied and, you know, I apologize in advance, also slightly frustrated, you know, satisfied in that by the end of this episode, you're both able to say to yourself, hmm, okay. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Good to know. Um, but I see now there's something deeper here that, that can or might benefit me. Um, but also frustrated in that in this short time together with Douglas, I hope we can make the case that what we'll discuss here just isn't even the tip of the iceberg. This is, I guess, to continue with the, the metaphor, uh, just a few of the ice crystals at the tip of the iceberg. And I'll make sure that for those interested in exploring more of the iceberg, we'll discuss where to start and any person or text that we reference, I'll also post in the show notes. So is there anything you'd like to add to that introduction? I know that I'm, I feel like I'm asking of you something not easily achievable you know, to compress this within a 60 minute episode, or if you know, we're certainly setting ourselves up for leaving a lot out of the story since there just simply is too much. Well, the story of yoga um, goes back thousands of years and across continents. I think one of the more important things to notice is that 
is that yoga is now an English word. It's a word that's been adopted and and reclaimed um, at once. That is to say, yoga obviously is a word that begins in India. It's a, it's a word in the Sanskrit language. It has lots of relationship to other words. We can talk about its origins as, as a word and its etymologies. But it, it has come to mean what it does mean in English. And so I find it very fascinating, Derek, that you start with the idea that that yoga is more than uh, stretchy pants and and poses. And yet that principal association of the word yoga in the West is, in fact, what I would think of as its first and most important definition today and in the West. That is to say, yoga has to do with, with this... Um, these practices of posture and wellness and that that are the familiar the, the familiar associations that people ordinarily make that yoga means different things at different times in history and even across the oceans but i would say it's been reclaimed as well let me just make that that one point you know i've i've been in india and back and forth now for the past 44 years or so and and it's only in the most recent times that we've seen yoga studios in india or we've seen as it were what yoga in the west means being something that is now available in its in its motherland in in india and so the definition of yoga is changing in india just as it has adapted and and formulated itself here it's in in fact the idea of having a yoga studio or a place to practice postures together uh, in a formalized sense with a teacher and going through sequences and basically practicing what we ordinarily think of as modern postural yoga nowadays that that was reimported into India from the West so the contributions have really lent themselves. Um, across cultures and time and have been imported to us and and we have re-exported asana yoga to uh, to india i think that's not an unfair assessment now there have been of course in the last 50 years uh, those who were practicing uh, postural yoga in india who did bring it to us and that story goes back much further than that but i'm talking about the sort of um, the proliferation of yoga as we understand it today and i think the most important uh thing to remember is that words mean how that words mean what people think they mean words mean how people use them and so i'm not i wouldn't begin by saying oh no modern postural yoga isn't really yoga um no what's really yoga is is what people think yoga is. And then we can move on from there and make different associations in history and in culture. Great. So you just lay down a lot. And I suspect by the end of this episode, I think that will make more sense to people who really don't know, mm. uh, you know, for whom what you just said is, is maybe foreign or, or unfamiliar. Mm. Uh, but you also mentioned you spent a lot of time going in and out of India. You're certainly well known in academic circles and quite active in other communities interested in applied philosophy and I've known you for well over 10 years, but let's just assume for a moment, our listeners don't know who you are. Tell us about your background and, and why, in, in my personal opinion, you are extremely well positioned to speak to this topic. Well, well thanks for saying as much. Well, I'm just a kid from New Jersey who, um, who wanted to see the world and, and who listened to the Beatles in the sixties. And, and of course, George was my favorite Beatle. And, and I, kind of wanted to know what more there was and what else there was about about India. Um, I was interested in the music. You know, Ravi Shankar introduced us to Indian classical music, and the Beatles introduced us to Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and Transcendental Meditation. And But part of me wanted to say, well, what more is there? What else is there? This this seemed like a an initial an initial sort of introduction, just a taste of things. But I was immediately fascinated by the time I was 12 or 13 years old. Um, then I, I went to college, and, and almost by accident, when, one of the very first things I did was begin to study comparative philosophy and history and culture. And I, I took my first 
very serious class in the history of Indian philosophy, you know, introducing Hinduism and Buddhism and the the native traditions of of subcontinental religions. And and that's when I first became interested in India um, in a more kind of academic and serious way. Just just with a very simple question, you know, if this is a great ancient civilization, who are these folks and what did they accomplish and what did they do? So uh, I had an opportunity then to spend, to take that junior year abroad that, that many did. And most of my, my friends in college were going to Barcelona and Paris and London and Florence and places like that. And, and I got it in my head to go to India and, and managed to find an opportunity to do that. And I ended up um, in deep South India, in the ancient city of Madurai, among the people who speak the Tamil language. And um, there are two great ancient languages of India. Hey, Douglas, can I pause you there? Sure. I just Let's come back. Remember that spot. I, there's something special about you deciding not to go to Europe. I suspect that would have been very seductive. Well... When all my friends decided to go to Europe on a college, you know, study abroad program, that just seemed to me like a party or, or I don't, I don't know. It, it just seemed to me that, that I needed to do something more. I needed to get to find myself in, in completely unfamiliar territory. I wanted to know what it was like um, to have to, adjust day to day in in a culture in a language in a climate in an environment that was entirely alien to me uh i i had read very early on a very wonderful and and famous comment by the philosopher spinoza i remember i read this in my freshman year in college and spinoza says all things excellent are as difficult as they are rare and I think that that is uh, an idea that very much applies to yoga. But I thought, you know, if, if you're going to do something worthwhile, uh, it should test you. It should challenge you. And, and if it's worth doing, you'll find out. And if, it's, if it, you, would, you pursue excellence, then, um, then the rarity of it isn't just exotic. You know, it isn't just, oh, how far away from home can I get? It's that there's something here really wonderful and that the the world is is vast and beautiful and filled with history and culture and i just wanted to know everything and that actually kind of turns out to be part of my story too so this college year program landed me deep in south india in the city of madurai uh the honey city which is the ancient capital of the tamil people uh, tamil is the one of the two great ancient languages of India that have survived, uh, Tamil and, of course, Sanskrit. Now, Sanskrit descends from languages like Vedic and other languages we call Indic languages. Uh, but Tamil belongs to the people of South India. It is, it's, uh, we can use a fancy word, Tamil is autochthonous. That is, it's self-earthen, it's native, it was born there. And the literature of Tamil and its lore go back as far back as Sanskrit and further back into Vedic, into Vedic worlds. And so that, and those are just our initial benchmarks in words and language. So I was just by great good luck, um, not knowing, not knowing quite enough about it, but the program, which was, uh, very famous, actually, study abroad program from the University of Wisconsin. So many of my colleagues who are fellow Indologists, you know, professional academics in the study of South Asia, uh, had their first start with the University of Wisconsin program. And by sending me to deep South India, they immersed me in a language that, and in a culture that was part of this great matrix of of Indian civilization, but had its own, its own distinctive flavor and its own linguistic core. And that, and, and I left for India wanting to have 
wanting to study Sanskrit because I had had a brief introduction in these first two college courses I had taken. And I was reading these magnificent texts, which are the source books of yoga and, and Indian philosophy. And I went to my professor and I said to him, you know, um, if this is if this is this amazing and interesting and complex in what is clearly a kind of wooden old-fashioned translation how much more amazing would it be if you could read this in the original and he kind of looked at me and raised an eyebrow and then about 3 weeks later i discovered this program and i came back to him and i said well that's what i'm going to do i'm going to go and try to learn the language um, to learn Sanskrit, maybe even learn some Vedic, and try to study these sources that have been so intriguing and so fascinating um, that I was had only accessed in these kind of old, rather archaic, even sometimes 19th century translations. That's how early on in the study of India things still were, even in the 70s. And then they landed me in South India, and I didn't even know what Tamil was. Um, and then I found out that Tamil had its own history and its own culture and and poetry and and philosophy and all of this was all pulled together in one place. And so what began as a study a year, you know, a study abroad year program, say nine months, turned into two years. Um, and so I, I I overstayed my welcome, such as it was, and but everything really began there. And within the first three months of my stay in India, I went through an amazing self-transformation, uh, if only because I came with very sort of romantic ideas um, of study and of history and culture, as if you could land in in this romantic, mystical, classical India, and. Uh, where and the India I landed in, of course, was in, was a developing in those days we would call it a third world country, and um, and very much sort of looking forward as I was trying to look back, and but in that process I also became, um, how should we say, a little, a little, a little more hip to what was going on, especially when you tried to study religion and philosophy and the ancient sources. And what came to be called yoga, um, because it was rife with kind of superficiality and charlatanism and kind of snake oil religion. That was necessarily something you were going to run into, because you know part of my pursuit was was genuinely as a seeker. I mean, going as an academic was a pretext. It was just a way to see the world. I mean, I had a kind of innate curiosity. But I was going to ask, you know, what more? What else is there in life? And and I came very romantic with a very romantic set of notions. I was rather promptly dissuaded of all of those, and and I became kind of really worried and and upset because I went looking for I went looking for uh, what we 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 used to call the wonder that was India. That's a good point uh, of reference for for folks. There's a really old book by a British scholar named Basham. And it's called The Wonder That Was India. And it's kind of the old handbook of all things about ancient India and its classical civilization. And I thought I was, I went looking for the wonder that was India. Uh, and and it's like, I felt like I had missed the party. Like I was 10 centuries too late. So I, I became a bit jaded and, and worried. And then uh, my... Tamil teacher, who was this lovely woman and a very wonderful linguist and a good teacher and just a, a just a very helpful person. She knew how kind of isolated and disconcerted I was because there I was trying to find, you know, an ancient civilization that and and, and so much of it was still there. I mean, um, beneath the surfaces of this march towards modernity, uh, all of the all of the, the wonders of ancient India are still uh, are still very much a part of that that culture and those that world, and so um, and so she said, well, the Sanskrit professor at the university has just returned from from a several year stint 
where he was a visiting professor in Malaysia and Singapore. And he's just returned here to India, and I can introduce you to him. He comes from a very orthodox family. Uh, he's a very nice man, but I don't know if he's going to speak to you or not. I mean, I don't I mean, I don't know if you can be a student, but you can go talk to him and see what happens. And at that point, I had visited scholars and pundits and swamis, and I had been you know, visiting ashrams, just trying to find anything that seemed real to me, anything that seemed rich and serious and authentic. And so I went to see this man. Um, and I, at that point, I had completely adopted sort of as much of the native way as I could. So uh, I walked into this man's office wearing, you know, 11th century Tamil garb, like I'm wearing, I'm wearing a dhoti, which is basically a long wrapped, um, how should we put it, like a sarong, and and a long shirt, and basically dressed to the nines for the, for the 11th century. That's sort of where it was. And the man behind the desk was in perfect 20th century clothes, and he looked up at me, and we had this brief conversation of introduction. And then he sat silently for quite a long time. And I was a little, once again, I'm like, my whole, my head was, was my heart was, racing and my head's awash and I'm thinking to myself, oh no, here we go again, you know, I'm going to be disappointed again. This, this romantic journey that I set myself on was all just a fiction and an imagination and yet another snake oil salesman. Yeah. My, and here I am with another snake oil salesman or even just a very lovely, just a nice man, but you know, what, what's there to this, you know, like what's, where's the seriousness? Where's, where's the connection between, you know, real learning and 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 the pursuit of the heart, a, a spiritual life. I was looking for all of it. You know, I, I really went as a seeker, not so much as an academic. And but they both, but that journey seemed to me, even from the outset, to be to be parallel, or at least even the same journey, which is how I really feel about it now. Anyway, this the story continues in a very sweet way. Uh, he sat across from this desk, and I had learned over these first months or so that my best strategy was to sit and listen and try to gauge the temperature of the room and and make my own my own assessments of what was happening and uh, he just sat there twirling a pencil and he leaned across the desk and in virtually the queen's english he said to me now what would you like from me and i didn't really have an answer to that question i was kind of panicked i, I didn't expect that and so I, I, I looked at him and I said, well, I want to know everything you know. And he smiled. He sat back in the chair and he said, well, that could take some time. So if you like, you can come back tomorrow. You found your seriousness. Uh, yeah. And then I thought, well, that was an interesting introduction. And, and I was dismissed. And so I came back at the same time the next day. And that's how the journey really began with my teacher. And uh, just as an interesting footnote to that, for the next 16 years of our relationship, he ended every day by saying, you know, if you like, we can carry on tomorrow. And I realized that that was an important teaching of yoga. Uh, it took a while for me to figure out, well, what do you mean by that? Because within three months of that initial meeting, uh, he invited me to live in his home with his family, in his extended family, who were, uh, and they were Orthodox South Indian Brahmins, that is, they belong to the traditions and the caste of the stewards and, and, uh, and creators of these, these traditions in Sanskrit and Tamil. And he came from, you know, a deeply traditionalist family. His brother-in-law who lived in the adjacent house in our little compound was a, uh, a full-time priest, uh, a Vedic priest, an officiant of ritual and a chanter of uh, Sanskrit mantra and all the rest of those tasks that attend to the, to the priests and the family. Uh, in, in, how shall I say? They, they were so warm and, and, and inviting and loving. Um, within a few months, I was I was part of the family and and learning as I went along. Every single day, his children were still small, so 
Uh, I took a lot of cues learning from the kids, you know, just do this, don't do that, follow along. Um, but when he said, you know, if you like, you can come back tomorrow, I learned that 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 a spiritual path, like like any worthwhile learning, is an invitation and not an obligation. And that that's a that's at the heart of yoga. That it's an invitation to the heart, to the body, to the mind. It's an invitation to the soul to ask, um, what more is there, and what do you want? But that commitment or that care that we have for that learning or for those practices has to come from ourselves. And so he didn't say, we're going to do this tomorrow. He said, if you like, we can carry on tomorrow. And, um, and, he, and he said it in a completely unaffected way. It was just, it was just, his, uh, just his manner. And, and quite literally, as the years moved on and our studies progressed together, both personally and professionally, that becomes another interesting part of the story. My teacher's name was Gopala Ayer Sundramurti, and he was professor of Sanskrit at Madurai University. And so uh, some seven years later, after our initial meeting, um, my application for the Fulbright Fellowship actually ended up on his desk. So I was a graduate student at that time at Harvard University, and I had applied for my PhD funding to return to India, and uh, and my grant application landed on my own teacher's desk. And at that point, um, he was my he was what I would he, I referred to him as Appa, which is the Tamil word for father or dad. So basically, I want a Fulbright to go home, um, <laughs> to go live in my to go live in my teacher's house and to spend those years studying together and and so we progressed from from my my very earliest times together all the way through my doctoral work and and then and then subsequently uh that that carried forward and like i said we spent 16 years together Appa died in 1994 of metastatic cancer and which was a which which was a was a crushing blow to me, but that was also the year where that process that began in 1977 culminated in in uh, my academic career in a certain way, because I was I was appointed professor. I I got tenure in 1994, the very year that Appa passed away, and and our work has kind of carried on as an inner conversation since then. So. Over that 16-year period of our relationship, I was really lucky to spend six, almost seven years with him in India. And my Harvard mentors were kind of happy to be rid of me. I was, I was always sort of running off back to India. But um, I, got, I got away with it because I learned a lot about, about living in India. And I had had that extraordinary experience that, that the academics also, I think, recognized as being really unusual. I mean, when I when you say to someone, you know, I I've lived in an orthodox priestly family. I've lived in a Brahmin home and and under the, you know, under the the studentship of an accomplished scholar deeply steeped in the traditions and practices, they look at you sideways because that kind of access, that kind of opportunity is were virtually unheard of um, just to have that kind of immersion and connection directly to the tradition. And, and, and let me just say one more thing before you, we carry on here, because that, that it's always made me kind of too much of an insider for the academics, but, but, um, but in a certain way, being an academic is, is being an outsider. So, so I've always kind of played that that edge between being part of the tradition and being a, and being a critic, a student, um, a historian, and a linguist who studies the tradition. And I think that that's that also is is part of what yoga has come to mean to me. That you can engage both with deep personal involvement 
and with a serious critical eye, with an ability to sort of watch and witness and and observe in ways where where your our connections are give us room to be both participants and observers, to be both um, connected to the tradition, you know, um, how should we say, like, true believers, such as it is, uh, and, and critics uh, with a keen historical eye about, you know, what's, what, what succeeds and what fails, or, or how people, or how to address this um, so that we can understand it um, in a more critical way, a more objective or academic way, as well as our personal involvements. So that's that basically has described my history of of being an insider because I had this access and this personal commitment, but being a professional academic is you know a different kind of task where we're critics, historians, professional observers. You know, I've often heard you speak to how at the edge, you mentioned the edge, and at the boundary, mm -hmm. the boundaries is where interesting things happen, is where growth happens. And you know, it's, it's just fascinating that you met uh, your teacher at a time when you were still deep in that curiosity of what more is there in life. And is that a good point for us to go back to maybe an early point where humans around the first and second urbanizations were starting mm -hmm. to ask that same question as, as humans moved from pastoral people to more civilized or attempting to, to civilize. Well, quite literally to civilization, you know, the, the Latin root of civilization, civitatus is civic, you know, it means to live in cities and and we see that in in antiquity in ancient india in 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 our most ancient sources you know the the civilization of what we we call harappa the indus valley civilization of harappa and mohenjo-daro that that happens to be the name of two particular important archaeological sites but the most ancient documented civilizations of the subcontinent we call the indus valley because it follows the river indus and those folks um, are, are, are truly a civilization. Over more than a thousand square miles, we find site after site um, where, where city planning reveals sort of really important um, marks of, of, their, of their success and their concerns. So, for example... Uh, when we study the Indus Valley, and this is the most ancient uh, remnants, archaeological remnants we have of India, unless we look back to Neolithic and and you know like pre-civilization stuff. But but can you date it just for those of us who've forgotten our elementary history? Sure, sure. That's what I was just about to do. So we usually date the Indus Valley somewhere about twenty two hundred before the Christian era. So that's about f almost five thousand years ago. And, and probably further than that, uh, the Indus Valley gives us these, this, these archaeological sites, these remains, and the cities are remarkable places. Well, let's just talk about, about three simple things that we find. Um, we find in the center of these towns, these, uh, these water tanks that have steps down into a, a center uh, of the town where they're they're clearly collecting water, and and exactly and and for what are certainly civic and probably undoubtedly religious purposes, but it's a, a centralized um, tank in this in, in the center of the town, and when you follow up on that, you can see that that even a thousand years after that, we we find those very same kinds of of tank constructions in temples in South India. And it's very often the case that we find out that this water tank uh, was, was there before the temple, that the temple is built around the tank, not the other way around. 
So all of this points to the fact that that these folks are are collecting in a in communal ways to to do things that have to do with ritual and purity and and like the temple tanks in India they're probably taking their their morning ablutions their spiritual bath before they go to to visit the gods of the temple or whatever else they may be doing and they're doing their laundry in the same place i mean it's all of a it's all of a piece and the indus valley gives us this first indication of kind of of collecting the life source the water in town and and bringing it bringing it to some kind of ritual uh, importance to the to the culture. Next to the water tank are almost invariably these granary towers. And now with 21st century technology, we have a better idea of even the kinds of grains that these folks were growing. And so that's really very telling because this agricultural civilization of the Indus Valley was uh was growing grasses and wheat and that means that we not only have cities we have we have suburbs and exurbs and we end up having a an entire kind of matrix of civilization where you know the bricks are all the same size and the roads are all the same uh, are all built in the same way and this extended on for for many centuries the indus valley eventually failed uh, in a catastrophic way and it puzzled it's puzzled scholars over over the over the years to try to ask ourselves well how did the indus valley fail or why did it fail and but it seems likely that they weren't invaded um and they and they were prosperous enough and they certainly didn't seem to to kind of implode upon themselves but so we now think that they probably suffered some kind of catastrophic um, weather event. And you might remember, Derek, um, maybe a decade ago or so, there were catastrophic floods in India and Pakistan. This was in, mm-hmm. in fact, the Indus Valley. And they were calling it a once in a century flood. And just you know, tens of you know, millions of people were displaced and tens of thousands of square miles were, were completely kind of washed away. And when I saw the satellite photographs of these devastating floods in India and Pakistan from maybe a decade ago, I said to myself, that's exactly what happened to the Indus Valley. I mean, they just had, and all it would have taken, of course, in those ancient years, is, those, those ancient times, was was that kind of catastrophic event. Yeah. Anyway, the, the story of India kind of goes on from there, because those are our earliest remnants. And those folks, so those folks gave us granaries and civics, but they also gave us a really important benchmark for the future history of yoga. They gave us the traditions of the great goddess because one of the most important artifacts of the Indus Valley are the figurines of what are certainly goddess characters in the in the kind of fertility goddess modes of of you know like skinny waists and hips and 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 bosoms and 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 the 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 fecund goddess character is a dominant feature of the Indus Valley, and then they also gave us these these little tablets that are called the Indus Valley seals. They're like little coins. They're just a few centimeters square. And there's a famous character on those that's uh, associated with yoga. It appears to be a character wearing a this magnificent sort of horned bull headdress and sitting what appears to be cross-legged in front of a pillar or a pillar of fire. And early scholars called that character proto-Shiva, and Shiva, of course, being the great god of yoga, of classical Hinduism. Now, that's been completely dispelled and even debunked. It was a good guess. It, it happens to be wrong. But who that character is and what what that character represents is some kind of some kind of uh, shaman, holy person, person definitely symbolic of of what happens when civilization succeeds, and that's we begin to ask, you know, what else? What more is there? And how do we connect? You know, how do we connect above and below the the, the sky and the earth? And the ancient story that then follows. The Indus Valley is is the is the migrations of people whose whose origins, of course, come far further back into the West. Those are the people who bring 
the Indic languages, which are related back to Western languages. And those migrants arrive around 1800 before the Christian era. Those are the so-called Vedic peoples. And when they arrive, it's pretty clear that the Indus Valley, who folks who had already been there for centuries, had already failed. Um, that, that, that they too came upon kind of the remnants of that civilization. And it's those migrant people who came, uh, who came over centuries of migration from the West who bring the languages that form the basis of what we call the Veda and the Vedic language. And then the aftermath or the subsequent evolution of that is called Sanskrit. There's a little debate um, over the last 30 years about the origins of the Indic peoples and Vedic and Sanskrit languages. And, uh, but that's largely been, been a settled matter. Um, both, both the archaeology and the linguistics and now the DNA has proven that the peoples who brought Vedic and Sanskrit as its, as its evolution to India were in fact migrants and that they came to the subcontinent around eight around two thousand eighteen hundred before the Christian era, they brought with them a long history of songs and stories uh, their their origins probably take us back all the way um, to the beginnings of of the civilizations we call the proto indo europeans that is a that's a long and complicated story, but there were folks whose origins are likely in the Caucasus and the eastern Ukraine and down into Anatolia and Turkey. Those people migrate east and west when they arrive in India. They bring with them uh, the languages and the cultures and stories of their own history and heritage, and that becomes the Veda. Those people um, refer to themselves by a really interesting term. They call themselves Arya. Um, that's the same word. Um, that you see when when their ancestors migrated west, because they migrated east and west, these Indo-Europeans, that's what we call the folk from, from the Caucasus, and they arrive in Ireland, and Ayr, and Aryavarta, Aryavarta is the most, probably the most ancient name for India, that is the land of the Arya, and the people of Ayr, or Ireland, are all, as it were, of of one linguistic source, one linguistic mother. So one of the things that happened at the in the 18th century was the discovery uh, that that this migratory pattern that origin that originates probably somewhere in the Caucasus and or Anatolia down towards Turkey, that this migration east and west all originates from one mother language, and that's a that's a, a pre you know, a pre-writing language that we call Proto-Indo-European. So all of that kind of scholarship and history of civilization um, brings together different worlds and, and different sources. But when it arrives in the subcontinent, in what we call India today, uh, those that evolution to, to what we call yoga begins its process. Uh, in the subcontinent, in this great kind of emergence of the peoples who were already there, that is the legacy and ancestry of the people we call the Indus Valley people, uh, who bring us the great goddess, who give us some indication of this shaman medicine person, uh, meeting the, the stories and legacy of the Vedic immigrant people. And those Vedic people principally look to the sky um, for their gods and their stories. Um, and the people that they meet are already agricultural, and they are the people of the earth who give us the mother uh, goddess, proto-mother goddess images. And so the Vedic people of the sky, who are principally giving us masculine characters, meet the the Indus Valley legacy, the autochthonous, the native people of India, uh, who are people of the earth and of the mother. And we, we fondly call this the marriage of heaven and earth, the marriage of the sky gods 
to the mother goddess. And that's going to give us the incipient forms of what we would call Hinduism today. That itself being a kind of a scholarly category. Like the, we can talk about the word Hindu probably on another occasion, but, but it's, it's this great complex amalgam of civilizations. These pastoral migratory people settle in northwestern India. They bring with them this great legacy of their own songs and stories. The oldest source of that is called the Veda. The oldest part of that are the songs called the Rik Veda. Those are about a thousand plus songs in this ancient language. And those that Vedic language was discovered in the 18th century to have, um, as, as the great scholar Sir William Jones put it, more than a coincidental relationship with the languages of Western antiquity. So it was in the beginning of the 18th century, more or less, that Western scholars figured out that these Vedic migrant people who become, as it were, the dominant voice in the creativities of Indian civilization um, from, from shortly after their arrival are have their ancestry uh, closely related to the peoples of the West who, also, who then migrated West, and that all of those people, East and West, converge upon one ancient mother tongue. Um, and that's how the whole history of comparative civilization and comparative religions and even uh, work their way back into the history of language and the history of human migration. A lot of mixing going on there. Yeah, so exactly. And a lot of a lot of of collection and assimilation and adaptation. And um, it isn't long before we come across the word yoga, um, which literally means making connections, or quite literally, more probably, um, in the familiar word yoke in English, as in yoking uh, yoking oxen to a plow or yoking horses to a chariot, almost all the words for wheel and horse and vehicle or chariot all come from Vedic, all go back to Vedic words. And you're referring to how that word shows up or uses of it in Rig Veda. Is that correct? And can you, can you date that for us? Yeah, sure. It's, it's the first use of the word yoga is in the Rig Veda. Um, it appears twice, and then it reappears in several instances. And it literally means um, to make a worthwhile connection. And, and uh, it, it appears in a compound that means something like curated or, or, um, or refined by connection. Yoga kshama is the technical term. And, and so what yoga does is it it is an endeavor that holds the world together, that makes a deep and valued connection. And that, I think, actually kind of carries into all of the subsequent um, usages and definitions of the word yoga. Even in, even in our 21st century usage, my own definition of yoga is a deep connection to something of value. Now, that can be as simple as yoking your horses to the chariot to get to, to get on with your life, you know, to like make a connection or or just like we're making a connection in this conversation. But to make a connection of value is to make yoga. And these folks were looking for relationships and connections that would that would bring them value in their life. And that value always turned in two directions. And this is, again, I think really representative in modern postural yoga, because, you know, in the modern practice of yoga, we think of wellness. We think of, of our bodies and prosperity and of, of a kind of joy or happiness in being alive. Um, and those first connections to the word yoga have to do with success, uh, success in the world, prosperity in the world, embodiment as as health and wellness and then and so yoga looked outside to the world to make a connection of value you know how do we prosper and what does that mean and what what does success mean and then yoga simultaneously turn very very quickly turns inside because one of the things we find out from any successful civilization is that is that once you have success you're asking the it's almost invariable that, that people ask, 
well, you mean this is it? Like, what else we got? Like, what more is there? And so yoga becomes um, shortly in, 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 the, in the centuries after the Veda, it becomes representative of, well, what more is there in life to connect with? So can I apologize there? So this concept of making valuable connections, I've heard you speak in the past also around the second urbanization mm-hmm. where we start to see not only people trying to understand this in their day-to-day worldly life, but also the emergence potentially of the renunciate i.e. there has to be something one would want to renounce. Right. So we, we, we find in many civilizations kind of the emergence of what the Greeks call ascesis, or what we would call in English asceticism. Um, that is people who, who, in the pursuit of what is valuable and the deeper connections we make in life, find the world to be temporal and conditional and fundamentally, no amount of material prosperity uh, awakens this deeper connection. And so the traditions of asceticism say, well, the world isn't going to deliver the kind of real joy that's possible. And so, and so asceticism kind of reaches in two directions. It, it, it creates a kind of restraint or a discipline, a sort of abnegation to the world, you know, like, well, the world doesn't deliver that. And if we keep, you know, like one of the first principles of asceticism is, is, is to stop the insanity, right? So what's, what's insane, Derek, it's doing the same thing again and again, expecting a different result, right? And so, and so if you're, if you get up today, and you're prosperous, and you get up and you do it again, and at the end of the week, you say, you mean, that's it, that's all we got. Um, We just have to keep doing this again and again, like we're in a rat race. And so the rise of asceticism was really concomitant, like it paralleled the rise of civilization, because people don't, as it were, turn away from the world uh, by like, if they're, if they're hungry or impoverished or, or, or rejecting the world. Asceticism isn't a rejection of the world. It's a deeper pursuit of an interiorization or, or a pursuit of of some kind of connection or goal, some purpose in life that that the world won't deliver. So asceticism always looks in two directions. It looks out at the world and says, no, not that. Um, And then by turning away from, as it were, the worldly forms of success, it looks for a spiritual success or some other goal that is extraordinary or not of this world. And the rise of asceticism uh, and its connection to yoga is a fascinating story because one of the great enigmas of the history of Indian civilization is the association of a yoga with the rise of asceticism because the peoples who came, the Vedic people, the Indic-speaking peoples, who brought their civilization with the Veda to India had no tradition of asceticism. These were pastoral peoples, right? They, they... They had wheels, um, you know, uh, they had, and, and, and carts and horses, and, and their basic strategy was to live long and prosper. You know, Vedic civilization's goal is, it's, it's like what Spock says. It's like quite literally, live long and prosper. There's a very famous little phrase um, in, in Vedic literature that describes what the aims of the Vedic life were. And it, it says, very beautiful, it says, Dehi me dadami te. Dehi me dadami te. And it means, give to me, and I will give to you. And that's more than just transactionalism or reciprocity. It's a way of saying, let's make a deep connection, and let's live long and prosper in the world. But the consequence of living long and prospering was also the idea that, that, well, now we've done that. So what more or what else is there? And that is what we think gave rise, at least in part, to the traditions of asceticism. That, that people in, with a certain amount of, of prosperity and well-being could say, now, is that all there is? Are we just these limited mortal 
and conditioned beings meant to repeat the same tasks every day. Um, the ancient Vedic world describes it as coming down as rain and becoming the plants and animals, transacting and, and, and giving to one another and going back up as smoke. And that process repeats. The rise of asceticism begins to say, well, that process of, of repeating success becomes, in fact, a new definition of failure because it doesn't point to a deeper possibility. And so, and so with the ascetics becomes this asocial, interiorized, um, and then with the ascetics a kind of misanthropic kind of, of connection that can be made to the world. And so the beginnings of yoga begin in a world where prosperity and connection is the foremost objective, give to me, I give to you. And it turns into this, a world in which, no, the world won't deliver that. Repeating those cycles of success becomes the definition of failure. So the old Vedic world's goals become the yoga, the, when yoga begins to emerge as traditions deeply associated with interiorization, you know, meditation, um, looking for looking for heart and soulful matters um, inside uh, and and saying what more and what else is there other in, in addition to or other than this limited and conditional world of repetitions, then they went looking inside for what the outside world wouldn't wouldn't produce for them. That's a, an important turning point in the history of yoga. Okay, now that we're at this point in the conversation, and before we go any further, let's try to introduce a definition of yoga or a way to help convey what is meant by it. In your recently published translation of the Bhagavad Gita, you quote Van Boutenen. And ever since you directed me to his definition of yoga, that's the one I tend to direct people to whenever I'm asked how this word functions. Van Boutenen, yes. The great um, J.A.B. Van Boutenen, Johannes Adrian Bernard Van Boutenen, was a scholar of Sanskrit, a Dutch, uh, well, he has that lovely Dutch name. Um, he was professor at the University of Chicago for many years and, and among the most talented and gifted translators of Sanskrit of the 20th century. He really had a fantastic turn of the phrase. And for 30-odd years of my uh, teaching in the university, especially teaching the Bhagavad Gita and other sources in the yoga traditions, semester after semester, I used only Van Boutenen's translation of the Bhagavad Gita until about two years ago, um, when when I realized after so many years, I realized two things. I realized that I kept explaining the same passages that I thought Van Boutenen hadn't quite made clear enough. And then I said to myself, well, you know, you've been doing this 40 years. Maybe you should translate this. And so it, it, it took me 40 years to decide to translate the Bhagavad Gita. You know, that's a text that as you begin Sanskrit studies and language studies, you'll arrive at the Bhagavad Gita somewhere around third year Sanskrit. Um, takes about two years to, to find your feet. So maybe end of second year, third year. And so my first translations of the Bhagavad Gita, you know, were, were those of a third year Sanskritist. Um, but I think about 40 years in, I was actually ready to tackle the text myself, but never without Van Boutenen's genius um, kind of looking over my shoulder and helping me out. He creates this really magnificent short passage uh, that helps us understand what yoga is. And Can you read that for us? Yeah, and I cite it in my own introduction to my own text. He says, yoga, this is Van Boutenen, he says, yoga is a self-yoking to a particular effort to win a goal. In doing so, a person may have tools with which he, so to say, girds himself. Hence, he is buddhi-yukta, yoked with spirit as his instrument. One girds oneself for a course of action, for example, fighting, yudaya, the dative case, which then is the goal, but also in a course of action, karmani, in actions, that's the locative case, or through a course of action, 
That's karmana, the instrumental case. And then, and then leads to a further goal. So Van Boutenen goes on and he says, this is really fabulous. He says, yoga then implies, one, the process of a difficult effort. Two, a person committed to that effort. Three, the instrument she or he uses. Four, the course of action chosen. And five, the prospect of a goal. Now, that citation comes from Van Boutenen's translation of the Bhagavad Gita. That's called the Bhagavad Gita in the Mahabharata. It's in his own introduction. And he's really, he really, it's, it's complicated and compact, but he really nails it because he calls it a self-yoking to a particular effort to win a goal. And that idea of self-yoking, of deeping, deeply engaging oneself to a process that is a particular effort, a process of what? A process of the body, a process of the mind, a process of the emotions and one's psychologies and feelings and experiences to a particular effort. And so we're now we're going to have methods and strategies to self-yoke ourselves for what? Well, he says, to win a goal. This idea that there is both a process and that that process wins a goal is really vital in the history of yoga because, because that effort we make, that winning, as, as it were, of a goal, tells us that the goal is both the process and its achievements. So yoga is both what we do and how we do it, and it's also what we hope to achieve or what we hope to get. Or, and, and that can be, and that, and that extends across every human endeavor. Like, we want to be of sound body and healthy. We want to be clear-minded and lucid and discerning and wise. We want to be emotionally capable and mature and connected. And all of that is really expressed rather vividly um, in the evolution of yoga, especially here in the Bhagavad Gita, where all of those kinds of concerns finally coalesce and and take on like a much broader and deeper um, definition than they had in earlier sources. So the Bhagavad Gita probably from, oh, it's almost impossible to date, but say, let's say somewhere around the second or uh, somewhere around the second century before the Christian era. Um, by that time, we're getting we're getting complex and rich descriptions of the meaning of of yoga, and Van Boutenen has very much helped us here by giving us a kind of um, systematic set of definitions. Because we yoga is something we do, uh, we 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 do we are in yoga, we are for yoga, um, we are directed to a goal or to a purpose or to an aim. Um, and, and those are all very practical concerns. Um, and yoga has always had those very applied practical concerns, even as it's kind of taken up the deep speculative considerations of the heart. You know, like what more is there in life? What else is there to achieve? And you're also clear that yoga can't just mean anything. And I think it's also fascinating that he also mentions that uh, the verbal root is used, what, roughly 150 different ways? Yes. Yeah. And um, Van Bouten has, has done his homework here. Um, and there's at least 150 different kinds of, of um, usages of the word in the text. And, and in each case, you can see that, that what, this, what the Bhagavad Gita itself is doing is, is yoking us to yoga which is one of the things one of the things the text tells us to do at one point uh you know the gita is, is offered in the voice of krishna uh, who who here is is representative both of the ideal of the godhead speaking but he's also sorry also very human he's the charioteer of the protagonist of the text. It's part of this conversation in the Bhagavad Gita. And he says, yoke yourself to yoga, um, meaning commit yourself to all of its possibilities, to the breadth of its meanings. 
to all the things yoga can mean, yoke yourself to all of that is in fact what Krishna is saying. And so that's a fascinating idea because he's saying, well, yoga is for your body. It's for your materiality. It's for, it's for prosperity. Um, but then its purposes extend into the clarity and lucidity of the mind. Um, he, he calls this buddhaya yoga. That is a yoga, you hear that word buddhi, that word is the same, that's the same verbal root that will give us the character of the Buddha, which means, which means to awaken, as to awaken from sleep, or to awaken to an awareness or depth of concern or insight or consideration. And so we are, we're being asked to yoke ourselves, to commit and care, and then, and then to become lovingly concerned. I, I, we might want to use the word discipline, but in English that seems so harsh. Uh, it's more like we become disciples of this greater set of concerns and connections that becomes, especially in the Bhagavad Gita, it becomes comprehensive. And so now yoga isn't just for those crazy, ascetical introverts who have wandered off into the forest or gone to the mountaintop or who you find sitting by the river. Um, yoga is now a comprehensive in, and an inclusive way of addressing all of our worthwhile endeavors. This seems like a good spot to take our intermission. You may have noticed that we just skipped over roughly a thousand years of history. The story of yoga is vast. We'll pick up on this on part two and retrace our steps back to the end of Vedic literature and then continue onwards chronologically. We'll post that next week. If you're looking at this episode online, you'll see part two in the episode listings. I look forward to picking up this conversation then. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008 and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the GLOW podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.